First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. Have you ever asked someone what their church was like? Ask them to describe their church to you. I'm sure you have. They might talk about the music. That's a really big thing. If you say, well, what's your church like? Some people go right to the music. They might simply tell you about the size of the church about, or about its growth, which can be two different things. If the church is involved in a particular program, then that might be what the person tells you about. We've just started to do this, whatever it might be. Someone called the other day to get info about our services their family looking for a Calvary Chapel because, as they put it, Calvaries teach verse by verse through the whole Bible. I like that. Nothing wrong with that as a descriptor, but is there more that should be said? The Apostle Paul described the church of the Thessalonians in the last portion of chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. He said they were an example to other churches. And so this is how we should want to be described. It's not everything that could be said about a church, uh, but the things that are said are certainly things that we want to be said of us. And so let's dig in and listen carefully. Verse 5, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. As you saw in the little video, we showed the word gospel derives from the old English word Godspell, meaning good news or glad tidings. It's a word-for-word -word translation of the Greek word euangelion, meaning good message. The Greek word also is the source via the Latin evangelium of the terms evangelist and evangelism. And so the term good news is actually translated into Latin evangelist. What exactly is the good news? Well, Paul outlined it like this to the church in Corinth just before he talked about the resurrection of our bodies. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. Then in verse 3, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ are the basic outline of the good news that God has provided a way of salvation for men through the gift of His Son to the world. He suffered as a sacrifice for sin, He overcame death, and He now over, uh, he offers salvation to all who will accept it. Further, the gospel is good news because it is a gift from God. Jesus is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. Salvation is thus available to all. It cannot be achieved. It can be received by believing. It's a free grace gift. Paul sometimes calls the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ the gospel. Sometimes he modifies it as he did here, calling it our gospel because it's the message proclaimed by he and his companions. Sometimes he calls it my gospel because the truth that in Jesus Christ, Jews and Gentiles are equal and are saved the same way had been entrusted to him. He also calls it the gospel of God because God had revealed it. And he calls it the gospel of Christ because the good news focuses on Jesus. We ought to be described 
as a church that emphasizes not just the need for personal salvation, but the absolute priority of getting saved. We should stress that getting saved and having your life transformed takes precedence over personal or social or political reformation. Transform the man and you reform society as a consequence. Uh, I'm not saying you can't do any of those other things or those other things aren't important, but as a church we want to stress getting saved, having lives transformed. Now the gospel, he said, did not come in word only, but it did come preached as words they could understand. He wasn't saying that there's something wrong with it coming by word. He just said it, it wasn't in word only, and then he described some other ways. But it, it, they understood that Paul had come and taught them from God's word. He opened up the word of God to them. The Holy Spirit used it to reveal Christ to them. Calvary chapels generally excel in this descriptor. That's not to brag or say that other churches do not excel in teaching God's Word. It's just an accurate observation. Uh, go anywhere in the world, and if, if you ask nine out of ten people what, are, what is typical of a Calvary chapel, they say, well, they teach the Bible verse by verse, and they have a strong emphasis on the teaching ministry. Having said that, we want to excel in all these descriptors, not just this one. So let's see some of the others. <clears throat> he says, the gospel came in power. Now, this doesn't mean external evidences like miracle signs and wonders. Nothing wrong with those, but that's not what Paul meant. If that's what Paul had meant, he would have used the plural form, powers. If he meant that the gospel came and I backed it up with signs and wonders and miracles, he would have used a plural. He's talking about something else. Here he's referring to the internal working of God the Holy Spirit upon hearts as the word of God was shared. As a descriptor of the church, this speaks of a confidence that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That when God's word is shared, a spiritual uh, transaction can take place in the hearts of individuals. In practical terms, it means that we should stay on message, not getting sidetracked by other methods to produce results. God produces results as His Word is honored and taught and received by uh, repentant hearts. And so we don't need a lot of other uh, you know, methods and programs to do that. If we don't see something happening, then we just need to pray more that hearts would be open to receive the word. Now, the gospel came to them, it says, in much assurance. I'm told by the language scholars that this assurance, or it could be translated conviction, relates to the one who delivers the message, not to the hearers. And so, when the gospel came uh, as a word with power, it was preached with real conviction and assurance by those who uh, were delivering the message. As a descriptor, it means that we must be bold in sharing the gospel. Now, having said that, this boldness cannot come from any effort on your part. It isn't a personality trait or a skill that you can learn. Sometimes you think of certain people and you think, wow, that, that person's really bold. You know, they, they, and in reality, if you knew them before they were Christian, they were just brash in their character before too. Only now they do it in a different way. Uh, and so we're not talking about a character trait. It's not a skill that you can learn. You can't go to boldness training. 
Uh, you know, there's no seminars to learn boldness. This is a holy boldness that is produced in you by the Holy Spirit. It is precisely the reason the disciples were told to what? Wait until the promise of the Father on the day of Pentecost, the gift of the Holy Spirit. They needed His empowering to come upon them in order to have this boldness. Jesus laid out the plan of evangelism. You're going to go, you know, to Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the world with the gospel. Everywhere you go, you're going to be sharing those, but you're going to have to wait for the promise of the Father. You're born again. You've seen me risen from the dead. You saw me ascend into heaven, but you are not ready to preach the gospel. You've been with me for three years. Some of you, you know, the, then the other hundred and, uh, I can't subtract 11 from 120 right now, but it's, uh, 109, is that right? The other 109, uh, who knows how long they've been with him. But Jesus said, you are not ready. But this promise of the Spirit, this coming of the Spirit, this baptism with the Spirit is going to come upon you, and then you will be emboldened to serve. Then you will have this holy boldness uh, to, to serve. Now, we obviously believe that there is such a thing as the baptism with the Holy Spirit, but I would say perhaps we don't emphasize it enough. How might we emphasize it more? Well, in a critical passage in the Gospel of Luke, uh, it's Luke chapter 11, Jesus encouraged us. He spoke of this baptism with the Holy Spirit, uh, and he said, you should ask and seek and knock for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he was talking to believers. He was not talking about initial salvation. He's not saying that there's a real effort, you know, to be saved. You need to ask and seek and knock and maybe I'll save you. No, salvation is by grace through faith. And so he's talking to believers, but he says, you should ask and seek and knock for the gift of the Holy Spirit. He said specifically, so if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who keep asking him? Luke eleven thirteen. And, and so um, we might want to start emphasizing more just that in our meetings we would ask the Lord to give us his Holy Spirit. Now, I admit uh, one of the reasons that we don't do this more is because there's all kinds of different understandings of exactly what you're talking about with the filling of the Spirit and the uh, baptism with the Spirit. Uh, there's probably people here who don't believe that there is such a thing as a baptism with the Holy Spirit. Um, you, you need to take your John MacArthur books and move them to the end of your shelf somewhere. And, uh, but uh, then there's others who are wondering why we're not running around speaking in tongues, which, by the way, has nothing to do with the baptism with the Holy Spirit. But Jesus said to believers, he said, why don't you just keep on asking for the gift of the Holy Spirit? Uh, and so shouldn't we do that? And so, um, you know, if God can interpret our groanings when we don't even know what we're saying, uh, he can certainly interpret what we mean when we say, God, just would you please fill us with or baptize us with or touch us with or send your Holy Spirit upon us as an acknowledgement that we need a holy boldness that can only come from God the Holy Spirit. And I think this could set us free in a lot of ways because whenever people talk about sharing the gospel and being bold, if you're like me, you think, 
I'm going to have to really have to get bold, you know, and you, you, I don't know what you do to get bold. That's what I do. I get kind of in myself like that. I think, bold, you know, but there's nothing you can do to have this holy boldness. It has to be produced in you by God, the Holy Spirit, as you yield to him. And sometimes I think we get in the way trying to be bold. When, when God would just, you know, one of the things that I love about the New Testament guys in the book of Acts, they had no idea what they were doing. They had no idea what they were doing. They, Jesus told them to wait, and so they thought, well, I guess we should wait. And they waited, and then the Holy Spirit came upon them, and there was all this phenomena, and then people gathered. And the next thing you know, Peter was trying to explain to them, well, we're not drunk. That was, that's how the first sermon started. It's kind of a fascinating thing, isn't it? The very first sermon of the Christian era was an analysis of whether they were drunk or not. And Peter said, oh, wait, no, you're not drunk. I guess he felt like he had to defend himself. And we're not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning, which I don't know what that even means anymore. I mean, I know people who are drunk at 9 in the morning, but maybe in that culture it was a different thing. And then he began to speak about Jesus Christ so much so with such boldness and clarity that they stopped him and they said, shut up. What should we do? They sensed that he could just go on and on about this. And they said, would you just tell us what to do? And he said, well, you need to repent and be baptized, every one of you, the remission of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. And so, and then as they go on, they really, they kind of had to figure things out. They didn't have any idea what they were doing. They had to be chased out of Jerusalem, even though the Lord had told them to get out of Jerusalem. It, it took persecution to move them into Samaria and Judea and all these other places and stuff. And, and yet, one thing they did have in, it was this, bold, this baptism with the Holy Spirit, this dependence upon the Holy Spirit. I see Peter and those guys as guys that said, hey, we don't know what to do, so why don't we pray about it and ask for the Holy Spirit to help us? And he did. And so we need to do that more. Then he says, as you know, what kind of men we were among you for your sake. One commentator summarizes this by saying, the whole man preaches. The character and conduct of the messenger of the gospel should give no cause to doubt the message. Now, this doesn't mean we must be perfect, only that we be thoughtful of how our character and conduct affects others, both believers and non-believers. Paul even goes so far as to say in verse 6, and you became followers of us and of the Lord. Now, don't you find it odd that Paul said they followed him and the Lord rather than the Lord and him or just the Lord? I mean, I, like to, I would tell people, you need to become a follower of the Lord. Paul said, no, you became followers of us and the Lord. But he's simply pointing out what we all know is true. You are the Jesus that people see. You are the living epistles. And so it's an exhortation to just live accordingly. Have integrity. Live out what you believe. Uh, and, and, and don't give cause for um, suspicion. Now, the next important descriptor is, what we would, uh, is that we would endure afflictions joyfully, verse 6, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Remember that Paul and company had quite literally been run out of town. He's writing back to them after they had been, several months after they had uh, been run out of town by the uh, Jews in Thessalonica. Before he even got to Thessalonica, he had been beaten and illegally incarcerated in Philippi. 
The, uh, the Thessalonians knew all this. Nevertheless, they received the word of God knowing that's what it meant to be a Christian. I'm sure Paul told them that suffering was in their future, but they could tell just by looking at him that it wasn't going to be an easy road. I'm sure he worked in his personal testimony. He says, hey, here's what I'm offering you, eternal life, but it's also a fellowship in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example. You saw how we were run out of town, and you remember when I first got there, I was pretty beat up, and we had spent the night in jail. So this is what it means to be a Christian. Who's on board? And they joyfully received the Lord. They didn't simply resign themselves to suffering. It was accompanied by an inner joy of the Holy Spirit. And so we would ask, are we those who count it all joy when we fall into various trials? Are we excited to share in the fellowship of his sufferings? There's this whole issue of what's going on in the world. I've been talking about it a lot. It's fascinating to me why there is so much suffering the problem of pain is thought to be the insurmountable issue that proves there is no God or that if there is, he doesn't have the power that we say he does to act. Almost any non-believer will default to this in an argument. You know, they'll say, well, you know, Boston or Hurricane this or whatever, and they'll say, you know, obviously there's no God. While individual circumstances must remain a mystery this side of heaven... We understand that God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish eternally. I'm always genuinely sorry for a person's loss, but it's compounded if they're lost eternally. And so the first thing we need to do is realize that we see the world from an eternal perspective. People aren't just suffering now. They're going to suffer eternally if they don't come into a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so God says, I'm willing to let suffering go on because of sin that I didn't will that mankind brought into the world, willing to let suffering go on for a time because the alternative is eternal suffering once I pull the trigger on final judgment. And so I'm going to be long-suffering as, as, you know, to a point so that not any would perish, but that all would come to eternal life. Along the way, we're described as being involved in a cosmic spiritual warfare. Satan has been defeated. Jesus defeated the devil at every point. There's a whole sub-theme of Jesus' life where you could just watch him defeating the devil, casting out demons. You know, we, here in the West, we, I think we have a kind of a default position that, you know, demonic possession demons don't, must not like the Western world of materialism, you know. That, and so we look at the Bible and we see that there's all kinds of demonic possessions and exorcisms and demonic activity. We don't really see it that much in, in our culture, and so we don't deal with it. But if you just look at the Gospels, Jesus was always taking on spiritual powers, always having authority over them. He faced off Satan in the wilderness, and Satan brought his best shots trying to get Jesus to worship him, which is what Satan has always desired. And Jesus, just as a man filled with the Spirit, used the Word of God, and he defeated the devil, defeated him on the cross. And, and you know, we have no doubt that Jesus has been victorious over the devil, but the devil won't quit. He knows he has a limited amount of time. He commands 
uh, vast legions of angels, fallen angels, and he fights on wreaking havoc where he may. And so we're in a war. It's a real war, and in war there are casualties. I talked a while back about uh, the, the military concept of acceptable loss. We're never an acceptable loss. We're always conquerors. But even in the world of the military, you think, well, in order for us to take Normandy, we're going to have to lose a half a million people overall. But in the long run, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be an acceptable loss. How many of you saw the movie Lincoln and you enjoyed that movie? They made up that, they made that theme. Remember that Lincoln was willing to let the war go on a little bit longer if necessary. Why? Because he felt like the emancipation of the slaves would never happen unless they passed the 13th Amendment. And, and so it was a trade-off. Those were acceptable losses to him because of the gain of stopping slavery. And we say, wow, fantastic. Wow, wow. Steven Spielberg, you're a genius. And thank Lincoln, what a great man. But then we see some suffering in the world and we think, God, what are you doing? How could there be suffering? God says, well, that's an acceptable situation right now. I didn't create it. I didn't cause it. I'm not behind it. I'm allowing it because over here I'm saving another 10,000 people today who would otherwise perish eternally. Now, in your individual situation, it's a mystery to me. I can't. I can't, I know we always want to say this happened for this reason because of this. Now I see how it all worked out. Sometimes we can. Sometimes you, you know, uh, the other day I got a flat tire. And I hate, if you know me, it's, it's like the one thing that really bothers me is car trouble. I don't know why. That, so I got a flat tire. Take my tire down to Badashi Tire. And I run into Danny, who used to work at the YMCA. I hadn't seen him in 10 years. And he's only there for like three minutes. He comes in and he comes out and I said, Danny. And so we got to talk and I shared with him and he's, you know, he wanted to know where we are. He's going to come and visit us and stuff. And I thought, so I thought, okay, Lord, I understand. You know, I got a flat tire so I could run into Danny. But that doesn't always happen. I'm going to tell you right now that there's going to be things that happen in your life. And you're going to say, what is the deal? And we try and make something up because we feel like we have to know. And God says, I, I, you're just not going to know this side of eternity because it's too complex. There are too many moving pieces for me to, to be able to understand all of them down the line. And, and so we're in a war. We're fighting. Um, there's mystery. Next descriptor, be examples, verse 7. So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. It's one thing to be a good example to non-believers, but here we're told they were an example to believers. And all this was in a short period of time. This whole church, Paul's writing to them maybe six months after they had become a church. I sometimes think I was a better example in things like faith and trusting God when I was first saved. The fact that they were great examples as young believers and that many of us were great examples too tells me that our example doesn't come through effort, but it comes by empowering. Having begun in the Spirit, I will not be made perfect by the flesh. Next descriptor, evangelism, verses 8 and 9. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, you've probably heard this phrase, preach the gospel 
use words if necessary. Have you heard that? You've probably, it's fine, I'm not going to point you out. Well, that's not what Paul meant, and I'm not sure that even makes sense. It sounds, one of those things that sounds really profound, but I don't think it makes any sense because essentially words are necessary at some point, unless I guess you're a mime, and then you can mime the gospel. But at some point, words are necessary to share the gospel. And when it's something more than words, it's not just being a good, moral person. There are a lot of people who do a really good job being good, moral people who are not saved. I think Paul's talking more about taking a stand for God and being an example. In whatever walk of life you find yourself, you can bet there will be a way to turn to God from idols. It might come as a crisis where you're called upon to compromise your faith. Think of Daniel and his three friends. First of all, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Busy serving the king, everything's going well, and then all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar has this idea to have a golden statue of himself that everybody's going to bow down to. And these three boys, young men, say, hey, we just can't do it. We're going to have to take our stand. Obviously, other Jews bowed down to that statue, made excuses. Hey, we're in Babylon. If God doesn't want us to bow down to statues, he ought to not bring us to Babylon where there's statues. But these three boys, they said, no, we, we can't. We won't. You can kill us or God will deliver us, but we're not going to do it. Or Daniel himself, knowing he'd be violating the decree of King Darius if he prayed publicly as was his manner. Nevertheless, he prayed anyway. And so there came a moment in their lives as government employees, we might say, because that's what Daniel was certainly, and, and, and as it, working on their day-to-day -day job and their life in the world, there came a, a chance for them to turn to God from idols when everybody else was going the other direction. And they said, now this is our example. We take our stand with the Lord. And so that, I think, is more what Paul would be talking about. And I believe there will come a moment or moments when you will choose whether or not to turn to God from idols and thereby give the testimony that you are a servant of the living God. I don't say this lightly, and, and I can't think of situations that I know of right now where people are, you know, in total compromise, but it, it's not un, it shouldn't be unusual that Christians would be losing their jobs more often or being demoted or whatever. Um, because they take a stand for the gospel at some point. The devil is about the business of trying to get us to compromise and to be involved in the idolatry of the world, uh, and, and we each have our Daniel moments along the way. The final characteristic today, expectancy, verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Wait is a word and in a verb tense that pictures a people who are eagerly and expectantly looking forward to the coming of Jesus, which is anticipated to be at any moment. We strongly teach the doctrine of imminence. Nothing needs to happen before Jesus can return to resurrect and rapture the church. And there are a number of verses we could cite, this is one of them, that teach imminence. That we're just waiting, looking for Jesus to return right now. And Jesus either can come right now or he's going to come at some other time and that ruins imminence. And so uh, we believe in the imminent rapture of the church. 
One author noted that this expectancy has been lost in modern times, and then he says, that attitude of expectation is the bloom, as it were, of Christian character. Without it, there is something lacking. The Christian who does not look upward and onward lacks one mark of Christian perfection. Now, the wrath to come distinguishes it as a separate period of time from that in which we are living. It's not just the, the junk uh, in the world, the sin and the evil and stuff. This is a wrath that is coming from God. We say it's the future seven-year great tribulation. We, the church, the elect in Jesus Christ, will not be on the earth for any portion of it because he says we will be delivered from it. Again, we get high marks as a church for talking about the imminent return of Jesus. We just also need to be sure that it affects our daily decisions, that we really are thinking, hey, Jesus could come at any moment, so is this what I want to be doing? Any church at any given time has room for improvement in one or more of these descriptors. Let's just make sure that these are areas in which we wish to be being perfected by God. Let's let these things dictate the kind of church we are and not any other worldly standards. And again, these aren't the only standards. We talk about the book of Acts and them continuing in the apostles' doctrine and in prayer and in fastings and all of these things. There's never any one single list, but... Uh, you know, certainly, you know, I, I would much rather, even though I think we have the greatest music, you know, around, I, I don't want people to just say, oh, Calvary Chapel, they have great music. Oh, Calvary Chapel, they teach the Word. We want to be described in all of these ways uh, and more. Uh, not that we're looking for people to describe this, but you understand what I mean. These are areas, and if, and if I've touched on something tonight where you think, ooh, I... You know, either we or I, we're not doing such a good job at that. That's an area to pray about, um, you know, and um, ask the Lord to renew our uh, vision in that area.